Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another edition of Revolution Recap. Uh, we're once again coming to you with an int- interview with a former New England Revolution player. Uh, Brian Dunseth joins the show today. Um, he's a guy that's now doing radio commentary and has very in- interesting insight on the league as well as insight on his time with the Revolution. Uh, played from the Revs from 1997 to about halfway through uh, 2001. Uh, co-hosting with me again today is Greg Johnson. Greg, how you doing? Good, good. It was great talking to Brian. Um, I, I don't think we blocked off enough time because he has a lot of great stories. Uh, I think probably arguably our most entertaining interview to date, I would say. Um, overall, great guy was more than willing to come on uh, with very little notice. So we, we greatly appreciate Brian's time. And uh, yeah, I think we learned a lot today. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. And, you know, Brian, um, obviously a guy that had a pretty lengthy, has long time in his career with the Revolution um, and was part of a, an era of the Revs that, you know, doesn't necessarily get as much coverage as uh, kind of the 2000s when the Revolution were so successful because those early years, the Revs, you know, struggled a bit. Um, but a, a lot of interesting insight from from Brian. And again, I'm Sean Donahue uh, hosting today alongside Greg Johnstone. And we have the interview with uh, Brian Dunseth that we'll play now. We're joined today by former New England Revolution defender and 2000 uh, summer Olympian Brian Dunseth, who now hosts the soccer radio show Counterattack weekdays on Sirius XM's dedicated soccer channel, Sirius XM FC. Brian, how are you doing in these crazy times? I'm good. I'm good. I'm holding up. Uh, got the the probably worst case scenario I'm dealing with right now is trying to figure out fourth grade Common Core math. Uh, because <laughs> that sounds horrible. That thing sucks. <laughs> Uh, well, well, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's much needed. I, I can't figure out how to teach the way my son's teacher is teaching, and uh, it's just all over the place. But yeah, we're ha- we're happy. We're healthy. We're just trying to make the best out of uh, obviously a, a really horrible situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people in your situation are finding even more respect for teachers with with having to do oh, some of that fill in work. Exactly. Well, uh, Brian, we wanted to talk to you today a little bit about, about your career in MLS and your time with the Rebs, uh, but also about the current state of the league. And I think that's going to—that's where we'll lead off. Uh, the Athletic recently reported that the league is considering a proposal to have all the teams go down to Orlando to return for MLS play. Uh, it looks like by June 1st, they'll do individual training, small groups by June 8th, mm-hmm. and then full training June 15th. Um, and this is all to hope that starting in July, we'll start having uh, MLS games. Um, teams could be there as long as 10 weeks, uh, and obviously they're doing safety procedures and they're quarantined. Um, what are your thoughts on this proposal? Yeah, I mean, listen, we, we've, we, you know, Tony Miola and I on our show, we've, we've been talking kind of the pros and cons and all of this. And I think what we've kind of come to an agreement of going back and forth is it, it seems as though this is maybe the best possible case scenario, considering the timeline we find ourselves in, um, because as we know, one size doesn't fit all. And the massive size of the United States is completely different than, say, what we're saying in Spain and Germany and Italy and England to centralize the location. I mean, just think about the numbers, the infrastructure, whether it's a thousand plus employees from Major League Soccer, it's 26 teams individually flying down there where are you going to stay how are you going to train what does the locker room look like what does the training room look like what happens if you get injured what happens if you test positive um at the end of the day i guess i'm i'm kind of, and i think about family members i think about you know partners that are pregnant i think about uh, family members that are or parents that are uh, immune um compromised autoimmune compromised all these things at least 
at least there's there's an idea in play that could either mimic a preseason or mimic a World Cup. Um, I like Mark DeSantos's theory where, you know, his conversation with his family is, hey, this is kind of like a World Cup. You go away, you train for three or four weeks, you play for three or four weeks, and then it's over and you come back home. There's no right way to go about this. I, I, I think every time I, I wake up in the morning, there's there's a new solution, a new answer, a new proposal. Um, but what I will say is right now, whether we're talking about Major League Soccer, we're talking about a, a potential, um, you know, situ- uh, I don't know, a merger with Liga MX. We're talking about whatever's happening in Europe. I think what we have realized is if there's ever a chance where you just want to throw something against the wall and see what sticks, right now is that opportunity. Yeah, it's it's uncertain times indeed. Um, and you mentioned kind of thinking about players' families. Do you think that players are going to be um, willing to leave their families and do this for two or three months? I I, I don't think one size fits all. I, I I do believe that there will most likely be a few players here or there uh, that will decide that hey, I'm not willing to to go right now. Um, I mean, it, it kind of gets us into a bigger conversation. You know, the proposed pay cuts, Major League Soccer, the MLSPA. Um, if you don't go, is there some type of, of retribution from MLS's perspective? Because remember, while the collective bargaining agreement um, has been agreed upon, it has not been signed and ratified. That becomes an issue that's kind of dangling over the heads of the players. So, I, I mean, I could definitely see special circumstances where players don't feel comfortable leaving their family considering what's happening right now and and i mean let's also remember you know we as kind of americans are are used to the culture and the environment and the locale that we're used to you think about all the foreign players that have come over and their partners and the idea of you know if they have children or if they have family members with them and they're by themselves uh for a a two-month period that can be pretty daunting so yes i i do i'm i'd be naive if I didn't say, yes, I do believe that there is going to be a handful of players that choose not to participate. And maybe the easiest way is they just say, hey, you know, they picked up a knock, they picked up an injury, and that would kind of, I think, publicly protect some of these players who choose not to be a part of this. And you, you touched on the pay cuts. There's been all sorts of stories about that. First, there was you know talk about a 50% pay cut that was requested where yeah. players under 100K wouldn't see any cut. Um, and more recently, ESPN's reporting that there's a request for a 20% pay cut across the board. Could you see any of that actually happening? Or how, how do you think that might play out? Well, again, it comes down to the Players Association, um, the MLSPA. I, the, the way, I don't know, man. I, I look at it as kind of two phases, right? If you're a young player... Um, you're by yourself. You don't have a family. You're making under a hundred grand. There's a good chance that you're probably paycheck to paycheck, right? There, there's a good chance you probably haven't saved up enough money to to feel like you are okay. There's players coming in from all over the world that probably, um, you know, have have saved up some money, but still have some responsibilities. Whether it's their family, their immediate family, whether it's their, their extended family. I just think there's so many scenarios at play. Yes, I mean if you're making if you're making Michael Bradley money, right? If you're making crazy money, Carlitos Vela, if you're if you're Chicharito, if you say, hey, a twenty percent pay cut, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty easy to swallow, considering for the last three months there hasn't been games. But if you're paycheck to paycheck, that that's going to be a little bit more difficult to swallow. What I, what I do like, and and I'm out here in Salt Lake City, and I know the news just came out in the last forty eight hours about Nate Monuoha. Uh, the former Sunderland and Man City defender who uh, plays for RSL. When RSL furloughed some of their staff, he's been giving money to up to 90 employees. And some of the players have come together and pulled their resources together. Instead of 
dare I say, take a pay cut. I would rather say, I'd rather see the players have the opportunity to donate to people directly or to donate to their choice of whoever they want to donate. Um, because I, I think that makes more sense to me as opposed to, hey, across the board, we're just going to slash pay and that's going to save MLS money. Yeah, it sounds like a, a lot more palatable to a, a player to have the option of, you know, perhaps taking a pay cut to have that money go to somebody who otherwise wouldn't be getting a salary during this time yeah. as opposed to just seeing it go away. Yeah. Um, w- one last question on, on these proposals. Have you ever played a meaningful match in front of no fans? And do, do you think that makes it harder for you know a game to be as competitive as it would normally be when there's a great atmosphere in the stadium? Yeah, I mean, I've I've played games where, you know, I've played national team games where nobody's there. And uh, it does it feel different. Yeah, it feels different. But you just got to make the most of it. And, I, and, and what I would say is the one thing that people sometimes fail to recognize is that soccer players, professional athletes in general, they view themselves as only that. You know, the one thing that if you ask any retired professional, they're no longer... Um, let's use Tony Miola, for example. He's no longer Tony Miola, the U.S. national team player, or Tony Miola, the Kansas City Wizard, or Tony Miola, the Metro Stars goalkeeper. He's just Tony Miola. And I, I think that's the one thing that when you're when you're looking at this, those that were probably burned out finally have found a new respect and a love and kind of regenerated their love for the game. Um, for those that have have had the game taken away from them for these last 90 days or so, this is an opportunity for them to just get back on the field and do what they want to do. So, yeah, you're right. The the emotions, the fans, the pomp, the circumstance, the presentation, the way they walk out. Do they walk out side by side? You know, there's not ball and boy girls walking out with them. There's no shaking of the hands. Uh, you know, you can't feel the crowd emotionally get behind you or kind of press on you if you're the visiting team. Uh, you know, it, it is different, but... At the end of the day, I think all these players are just chomping at the opportunity to just get back on the field. That That's all they know. That's all they want to do. And I think as fans, we're all uh, chomping to have some soccer soon uh, on our oh, televisions. Uh, soon again. But, uh, Brian, I want to talk to you about uh, your career and how you ended up in New England. Um, you were a member of the first Nike Project 40 class, which has now become Generation Adidas. And back then, Project 40 players were assigned to teams and were not mm-hmm. a part of the draft like they are now. Um how were you assigned to New England? And as a California native uh, who went to college at Cal State Fullerton, um, what were your thoughts about going across the country to Foxborough? Oh, man. I, uh, so here's here's the story. Uh, Carlos Parra, who was kind of a sometime, he was a squad player for our under-20s. There was a strike for the U.S. men's national team. And Steve Sampson called up a bunch of the under-20 players. And and I, at, at that time, I ha- I wasn't a part of the, the program. It was the fall before. And they went down to Chile. He got a cap. And next thing you know, Carlos was supposed to go to Maryland. And for one reason or another, I, f- I feel like he didn't pass like an English class. And so he, his, his scholarship was basically void. He wasn't going to get into Maryland. So Sunil Gulati, U.S. soccer, were like, well, hey, this is kind of like, you know, th- this is, this is kind of tar in our nose right here. We, we've got a guy who's capped at the full national team level. What's he going to do now if he can't go to college? So the idea between Nike and U.S. soccer at the time um, was, hey, let's create Project 40. Let's create this this system to fast-track players from the college game into the pro game, but we'll also subsidize their, their education. We'll give them a financial component along with our contract, which was twenty four grand back then. Uh, living in Norwood, it was $776.78 every two months uh, with Teddy Kronopoulos and Ahmad Baba. Um, it didn't go far. My rent was like $1,100. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a tough time. But 
I, I came. I, I got scouted at a UCLA tournament. It was Glenn Myernick. At the time, he was uh, Bruce Arena's assistant coach with Bob Bradley on the Olympic team in 1996, just coming off. He was going to take over the Colorado Rapids, and he saw me play uh, for Cal State Fullerton. I think as a defender, I had like a goal and two assists. Next thing I know, I get a call from Jay Hoffman in the under-20s. End up making the World Cup roster, going to Malaysia. But before then, Sunil says, puts us in this boardroom at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, California. And he says, all right, we're starting Project 40. Carlos Parr is the, the first one. We all kind of snickered. And next thing you know, he goes, so who is anybody else interested? I wasn't on full scholarship at Cal State Fullerton. I raised my hand immediately. All the guys like Benny Olsen, Josh Wolf, everyone's looking at me like, dude, what are you doing? Because they were at like Clemson or Virginia or UCLA or, you know, uh, in uh, North Carolina. All these guys were at big schools. I was at Fullerton. Good soccer school, you know, not the greatest educational component. So I end up putting my name in the hat. I signed the contract. Um, Ivan Gazidis, who's at Arsenal right now, was there. Sunil Gulati was in my house. Um, uh, everybody from like the MLS headquarters, the, the big people were sitting in my office and were trying to convince my parents to go pro. And I had basically told my parents before, if you guys say anything that's like, no, you can't go, I will literally drop kick you. I'm going. <laughs> There's no chance. So uh, a couple days later, I get a call from Thomas Rongen and Renato Capabianco, who was the assistant coach at the time. And they said that uh, they had chosen me and I would be allocated to New England. Um, so fast forward, get back from Malaysia, join the team. Um, coincidentally, they were coming out for a July 4th, 1997 game against the LA Galaxy. So I joined them in Pasadena two days earlier. Uh, got my debut three days later in San Jose, got a concussion, got subbed at halftime. Still can't figure out how I got on a plane from San Jose to L.A. and landed in New York the following day. Um, and, yeah, I was just this California kid wearing, like, baggy jeans and a hoodie sweatshirt and a hat backwards. The next thing I know, I walk into the Boston area and everyone's wearing corduroy pants and flannel T-shirts and chewing on their hats. And I'm like, what in the hell have I walked into? And uh, go and get an ice cream. And the guy's like, brother, you want Jimmy's? And I was like, uh, can I just get rainbow sprinkles? He's like, yeah, Jimmy, sprinkles, same thing. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I don't know what's going on here. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a blast. I loved everything about Boston. Um, my time for four years was probably the longest in my career in one location. I wished it could have been longer. Uh, didn't have a really good relationship with Fernando Clavijo at the time. That was better after uh, I stopped playing, but yeah, nothing but fond and fantastic memories about my time in New England. And you kind of gave our listeners kind of a brief description on how crazy uh, your your 1997 was uh, and how you uh, went from college to Malaysia and, and to the pros. Um, you, you joined the team midseason. Um, was it harder to kind of break into the team and establish yourself as a rookie um, because you kind of had a shorter season? You didn't have a preseason to get to know your teammates? It wasn't just that. Quite honestly, it was the fact that I was like five years younger than everybody. I think, well, four years. Imad Baba was the closest in age at my time. And it wasn't until Jamar Beasley came in that I was actually older than somebody. Um, I, I just remember, I'll paint the picture. I, I get to the hotel. I get there early. The team shows up. Mike Burns is my roommate. Um, by the way, I, I know there's like a, a view of Mike Burns as a general manager, but Mike Burns as the player was one of the best teammates you could possibly have. And he was undercover, like one of the biggest pranksters you would ever come across. And he had this giggle where the very first day, like we broke into the trainer's room, like for my initiation, he's like, come on, let's go, brother. And we like went to Ara, the trainer, this probably like bald five foot two barrel chested beefcake. 
and we like had his key card and Bernsey's like grab all the t-shirts so I grab all his t-shirts and Bernsey's cutting the sleeves off of all of his t-shirts for like a 10-day trip out to California collared shirts long sleeve shirts t-shirts all like rev stuff so we all had to like dress the same so we like sneak out we go to like our first lunch I get introduced here comes Ara Ara's in a collared shirt uh, like a Reebok collared shirt with no sleeves on. And he's like, where's that mother Bernsey? I'm gonna effing kill him. And I was like, okay, this is the locker room. This is the mentality. So we had like Joe Max Moore, um, uh, Kigo, uh, Paul Keegan, uh, let's see, Teddy, Imad, Alexi, I mean, Alberto Naveda, all the guys, Chiqu- uh, Chiquinho Conde. I mean, we had just a, a really fun group. We struggled on the field sometimes, but it was just a, a really you you could see you could see the the tier of where you stood. And as a young guy, I just remember Alexi on day one. We're on the bus. You know, this is Alexi, ninety seven before the World Cup. Uh, he's got the Adidas commercials going to France. He's got the Powerade commercials. He's got sunglass commercials. He's got to pull his hair back in, into a ponytail and put glasses on and a hat on because he's recognized everywhere. He's on the bus and he just says to me, "All right, Dunny, here's the rules." Ball bag, you're responsible for. Uh, bags getting on and off the bus, you're responsible for. If I throw my tape on the ground, you're responsible for. 5v2, you're in the middle every single time until you're older than the next two players on the team. By the way, this is an 18-man roster. Um, <laughs> what else did he say? Oh, oh, and here's the thing. And by the way, you're 20 years old. If I ever see you on the training table or even thinking that you're going to get a massage, I'm going to stick my foot right up your, and I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) And so I kind of knew, um, and I, I very quickly kind of became the little brother because Clive Charles was our Olympic team coach. All these guys were, he was the assistant, assistant coach to Steve Stamson for the world cup team. And all these guys loved Clive. So very quickly I was taken under their wings, but, uh, I I was on a short leash. I knew that I had to, it was kind of like being in Europe. You were like a YTS. You were scrubbing boots. You were you were responsible for kind of learning the trade, and you had to earn it both on and off the field. Yeah, and you mentioned a lot of the names that you know I was going to touch on. Um, which which one of those guys would you say took you the most under the wing back then? You know, the, obviously Mike Burns, Alexi Laws, two national team guys, Francis Okoro, who you know probably outshone them in some ways. The general, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's a fantastic player. Um, you mentioned Ted Kronopoulos, who I think we're actually going to have on the, the podcast maybe next week. So that's, that's going to okay. be a, a fun show. But um, which, which of those guys would you say in particular was kind of the, the most helpful to you and, and you, know, you developing as a defender? By the way, if when you get Teddy on, you got to say somebody that we had on the previous week asked uh, how many times you shampooed and conditioned your hair in a single day. <laughs> <laughs> just do me that one favor and he's, we'll, you know, we'll do it <laughs> i was hoping for some dirt on ted i think sean dropped that to uh get some get some dirt on him uh before, oh before got, that was the goal I got, I got plenty of dirt on teddy i got i got chrono oh i got i got dirt for days um yeah let's see i i i bonded so like our little core group that was kind of closest in age was kind of darren sawatsky d swat um imad and teddy uh, Steve Klein was there for a little bit uh, before he got let go at the end of the season. That was kind of the core. We were kind of out in Norwood um, and, and kind of right out by the, high, the hospital in Norwood just because of the location. It was easy. It was 10 minutes drive to the stadium and uh, you were fine. Um, but then oddly, and, and, I'm, I, and I, it, it, it took me a while to kind of figure this out, but I became, do you, do you remember Oara, Walter Zinger's girlfriend? No. Do you, do you remember the blonde girl that he would like 
they we'd score a goal and he'd run over to the side of the the to the the old Foxborough Stadium, the big blue wall, and he'd kiss the blonde girl in the front row. That was Oara. Oara was actually <laughs> younger than me. Oara was like 19. He was like 42 at the time. And uh, I became friends with Walter and Oara and subsequently um, was very fortunate to become friends with all of her friends when they came over from Italy. And so, yeah, Zenga, hearing his stories were incredible. Um, spending time with him in the North End at Pino's Place, downstairs in the basement, five hours worth of Italian food just coming straight at you was incredible. Um, one of my favorite guys was Leonel Alvarez. That was a couple years on. Uh, the Colombian International, because Leo, you know, the two Escobars movie when it came out, like I'd known all those stories because when Oscar Pereja had come, he didn't really speak a lot of English. I spoke enough Spanish that we could communicate. And Poppy and I would would talk about all these things that happened in his past. Like I would use these guys as like, okay, you guys have this incredible story and history and experience. Like I would be really stupid if I didn't try to pick your brain every opportunity that I had. So with with Oscar Pereja and Lionel Alvarez, both of them always treated me like a little brother, always took care of me. I mean, we get done with training, we'd go eat, we'd lift weights, and then we'd go back on the field in the afternoon for a double session. And Leo would put a parachute on my back and make me chase him and shuttle runs to try to like get us both stronger and faster throughout the course of the season because he was frustrated with the way, you know, the results were on the field. Um, and then... Uh, God, Ivan McKinley, the stories about Ivy. But Joe Max Moore, yeah, and, and Joey. Joe, there's there was just like the old guard of the US national team. They just they were always good to me. And I was always very, very thankful for that. Uh, especially in a time where I was kind of coming through the ranks and getting a bunch of little small tastes of uh, of the full national team. Yeah, and you mentioned Joe Max Moore. A, a lot of teams now are doing all time best elevens to celebrate the the twenty fifth anniversary of the league for the revs it seems like outside of joe max Moore, a lot of the, the players that played in your era have been overlooked when kind of doing those teams who are some of the top players from your time that you don't think get enough credit uh when guys are looking back at kind of the all-time best revolution lineups oh man um that's a great question i haven't even thought about that when i think back at my time let's see I, I still think that Ivan McKinley is woefully underrated because everyone just kind of sees Ivy as as the guy with like the greatest stories off the field and that he was just kind of this brute on the field, this barrel chested South African brute because he was always kind of getting stuck in. But, man, I'll tell you what, if, if you ever wanted a guy that you were struggling to keep possession, that you you knew he was checking for the ball and he wanted the ball every single time, that was Ivan that that left foot. Um, you know, everyone talks about, you know, Preki and, and Marco Echeverri and all, and, and all of these incredible left-footed players through the history of the league. I, I would honestly, if we had like a, a skills competition, I would put Ivan McKinley up there against all of the best left-footed players that have played in MLS. And I know that sounds crazy, but uh, unless you played with him, you didn't, you, you didn't realize what an elegant player he really was. Um, because all the kind of other stuff, the shenanigans kind of overshadowed all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, God, I think about the history of the shootout and how good Iman Baba was. Um, Mauricio Wright, even though at times I hated playing alongside of him because he would just be this marauding center back that all of a sudden I'd be two strikers versus one defender by myself because he got caught all the way up the field trying to score a goal on a 90-yard run. Um, yeah, I, I mean, th those would be... Off the top of my head, yeah, though you know, those would be the guys that I would think of. And 
in your four years uh, in Foxborough, uh, the Revs went through a few coaches, um, huh. three different coaches while you're in your tenure there. Um, who did you learn the most from and how did their style styles differ? So I learned very quickly with let's start with Thomas. Uh, I learned very quickly with Thomas Rongan. If you can't look at yourself in the mirror and be very, very, very honest and open about your performances, you are never going to last. If you were egotistical and defensive about the way you played, and especially when you were making mistakes, uh, you were going to get filleted. He had no time for that because he wanted the collective to be better. And if the individual wasn't willing to to work within that idea of the collective um, and it was selfish enough to kind of try to separate himself from the results, you were going to be in big trouble. Um, let's see, Zenga. That was just a wild ride. Zenga... You know, who who was I just I was talking to Brian Bliss the other day um, and who else were we talking to? There was somebody it was oh Gio. I, we were talking to Giovanni Savaresi on our show uh, on Counterattack because we we're doing this story time. And 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 Gio was one of the, you know, an, an, another guy that kind of brought back so many memories because, you know, here we did this like five. I don't know if you guys remember. We did like a five or six week preseason tour of Italy when Zanga was the head coach with Beppe Galderisi. And we stayed at this resort and Marcella Lippi came and the weather was terrible, but it was inc- you know, incredible. We went to see Inter Milan against uh, against Juve when Thierry Henry was on Juve right before he made the move to Arsenal. And then we were down in Catania and we were on the side of the mountain with Mount Etna. And it, it was it was kind of the, the Walter Zenga. I called him kind of the Michael Jordan at the time of Italy. It was like the Walter Zenga show. It was like the traveling circus. We were like the traveling Zengas, uh, take a traveling Wilburys group, a name out of there. And um, it was every day was something different. It was like the core group of guys that he liked after training. We would go get an espresso and a coffee with him. And then everybody else was like sent back to the hotel. And it was like this. It was it culturally. It was like so much fun because it was this mix of players. But at the same time, I mean, you had Dutch, you had Venezuelan, you had English, you had Irish, you had American, you had Italian. But then all of a sudden. He he. We never knew if he was Walter the goalie or Walter the head coach. And if Walter the goalie made a mistake, like we never knew. Like, could you could you have a go at him? Like, if he messed up or he gave you a, a crappy ball or you know he was at fault, like you almost felt like you couldn't say anything because your position was at jeopardy because he could bench you, right? So he had this kind of inv- air of invincibility about him. Um, Stevie Nichol was my short amount of time when he was interim, when he was the boss uh, coming off the Boston Bulldogs, he was incredible, but that was really, really short lived. And then, uh, Fernando came in and that was really Fernando's first gig outside of indoor soccer. Um, I personally had so many run-ins with Fernando as did pretty much everybody else. I mean, if you look through the timeline of Fernando's career, he pushed a lot of people out of clubs that he went to. I think Pablo Mastroni was pretty, pretty much the only player that, ever really outlasted Fernando. Because, um, you know, I'm thinking about Dan Kalichman. I'm thinking about Eric Winalda. I think about Johnny Torres. I think about John Harks. I think about Mike Burns. All kind of pushed out underneath the tenure when Fernando was there. I, you know, I got pushed out. I've been asking to be pushed out for a better part of a year. Um, and funny story, every day after training, I go go to lunch. I go, remember those old offices are down the road from Route 1 where the Rebs offices. And uh, I'd go and knock on his door. And I'd be like, hey, Fernando, you know, listen, it's not working out. You don't like me. Don't necessarily like you. Let's figure out a solution. You know, I'd like to be traded. And he would literally say to me every day for like 30 days, Brian, the thing that it is, nobody wants you. 
every day. The thing that it is, nobody wants you. And then finally I get a call from Ray Hudson. I'm going down to Miami and Ray goes, Briny, I've been trying to get you since last year. And I was like, oh, damn you, Fernando. You bastard. Um, but yeah, a- after that, uh, after the playing career, I-, I spent a lot of time with Fernando. I got nothing with, for, I have nothing but respect for him. Rest in peace. Uh, good, good, good guy away from the game. Uh, just didn't see kind of eye to eye during uh, his tenure as manager. But yeah, th- those were, those were wild times, man. We, we, we could win a game against the best team and then get thumped six nil against like San Jose uh, on a Sunday on national television. And we just couldn't figure out any type of consistency over the years. Yeah, and I, and I want to get back to Ray Hudson in a minute, but before that, um, I remember hearing stories. Uh, Jamar Beasley was a guy that was, I think, his entire tenure was on the team when you were part of the team. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of stories back then about him going out and partying with the Celtics and, and Paul Pierce. Um, did you know about that at the time, and were there you know other oh. players that were big partiers? <laughs> uh, I mean, we. I mean, thank God that was a time before social media. Uh, I mean, I, I I count my blessings every day because what what you could. What you could do back then was relatively anonymous uh, outside of getting caught by uh, the page three girls in, in, in the globe. Um, let's see. The inside track girls. I apologize. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Jamar, Jamar, Jamar became buddies with Paul and a couple of the guys with, with the Celtics. And yes, you know, that was the time MTV Cribs, ESPN, the life. And, and, and Jamar was, you know, he wanted to be a part of that. And I, you know, when I look back at Jamar's career at the time, he probably wasn't ready uh, because of his age. He he probably could have used a year or two in college just in terms of like personal development, um, because when he got into that locker room, you know, he I don't think he was kind of prepared for the kind of the psychology of bringing it every single day versus kind of being with the national team, being in Bradenton, being the most athletic player on the field where he could kind of be heads and shoulders above everyone else, where all of a sudden, you know, you take an 18, 19 year old kid and you throw him with 26 year old men, physically, he's going to get a battering. Right. So, um, yeah, he, he found it a tough time to kind of walk that line of, you know, on the field, off the field. And, and ultimately I think he found, he found his niche in indoor soccer, you know, for a long, long time. I think for about 10 years, he was one of the best players in indoor soccer. Um, I think he spent some time with the U.S. futsal team as well. Um, but I think it was also a really good roadmap for his little brother, De- uh, DeMarcus, to kind of see, you know, the highs and lows of things that can happen when you turn pro. Yeah, and, and you were the captain of a very successful U.S. Olympic team in 2000 that made it all the way to the, the semifinals before a tough loss to Spain. What, what was that experience like? Uh, as much as I try to describe it, it's incredible. Um, actually right behind me, uh, on my, on my wall, I actually have the picture of the bronze medal match against, uh, Chile and, uh, Bam Bam Zamorano and I traded jerseys at the time, you know, Inter Milan, Real Madrid, Ivan Zamorano, um, which was incredible. It, it was it for the most incredible moment of my life in the buildup for four years. It was a still, a a hard pill to swallow because I got injured. This is another Fernando story. I got injured the very last game before heading to Australia. And Fernando had gone on uh, like Univision, those two o'clock Univision kickoff games and said something effective like Brian Dunseth doesn't care about the revolution. He only cares about the Olympic team and totally threw me under the bus publicly and didn't start me that game. And afterwards I was doing extra fitness on the field and I like slipped and I kind of like did my groin. Well, that groin issue, I ended up having to take myself off. We were playing against Cameroon in the opening game, um, and it was, uh, or maybe Czech Republic was the opening game. But I knew, 
I knew I was coming up against Samuel Eto'o, and I was like, well, if I turn and try to run and I pop this thing, not only am I going to probably concede a goal, probably going to burn a sub, um, I got to do the right thing. And with tears in my eyes, I had to go to Clive and take myself out of the starting 11. Well, once I recovered, the team was playing so well that Clive couldn't change the team. And so finally, it wasn't until Chad McCarty picked up a, a yellow card suspension that had in the bronze medal match, I finally got to to lead the team out, wear the captain's armband, and uh, you know have that have that U.S. crest on my chest. And I can still I can smell the grass. I can smell like the 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 little cement walkthrough from the locker room. I I can just hear that music, that FIFA music. Um, and yeah, to this day, still one of the proudest moments of my life. And if that damn ball would have just been down another inch or so instead of hitting the crossbar in the post, uh, I mean, maybe I'd be sitting with a bronze medal as opposed to them coming down the other way and getting a penalty like 30 seconds later. And we, we've all seen Ray Hudson's colorful commentary as a broadcaster. <laughs> what, what was it like for you to, to play for him? And what, what was he like as a coach? Is he as colorful in the uh, pregame speeches as he is on TV? <laughs> yeah, so the, the pregame speeches, well, let's put it this way. Ray is one... The, the way that he formulates his words and his theories um, are incredible. I, I To this day, on a broadcast, I'm still laughing. I start giggling when stuff comes out of his mouth. I'm just like, how the hell did you pull that? And then figure out a way to verbalize it and put it to uh, put it in the microphone. Um, the only difference between Ray, the broadcaster, and Ray, the manager, is just a lot of curse words. That's that's the only thing. It's all the same. It's super motivational. It's all the curse words and, uh, you know, uh, uh, just the random analogies. One day, you know, we got a shutout at home and he comes running up. He kisses me on the lips and he's like, Briny, you're like the Statue of Liberty out there. And I was just like, uh, I think, OK, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, that's a good iconic thing to, I guess, reference. Um, I'll take that. And then, you know, we'd, we'd walk in right before kickoff and he'd, he'd literally write F-U-C-K-E-M on the board, space E-M. And he'd be like, don't worry about them. We worry about us and them. And, and then it'd be like, run out in the field. Um, because we'd all, you know, we'd been prepped tactically all week long. And then it was just motivation. Let's go kick their ass. So, yeah, I, we, we he treated us like professionals. We It was a huge drinking culture on that team. We were a band of brothers of degenerates um, and best team in the league. Runaway leaders that year in 2001 before September 11th. We got, you know, we got, we got, we got contracted at the end of the year. I feel like we lost a player either to red cards or, or second yellows every single game. We felt like it was the fix was against us. Um, we felt like we should have been in the MLS Cup final. Uh, but yeah, what, what, what a group, uh, what a manager, and uh, I, I thankful that I still get to talk to Rocky um, a couple times a month as we both uh, over on SiriusXM. And I know you got to get going, but before uh, we wrap up, I wanted to quickly run through one other part of your career, and that's when you ended up playing for the Columbus Crew the next year, where you actually ended up playing against the Revolution in a very tough three-game battle in the playoffs. Do you, do you remember that playoff matchup with the Revs that year? Oh, I do, because that was supposed to be us facing the LA Galaxy in both the Open Cup Final and the MLS Cup Final. Yeah, I, I remember that. And I remember that that third game, um, what did we need? Just a draw, and Jay Heap scored a header, I believe. And that was what put New England through to the final. And I can remember all of us were, you know, Brian McBride, Brian Mazenoff, Mike Clark, uh, Jeff Cunningham, Edson Buttle. We, uh, you know, we were we were all furious because um, Greg Andrulis wouldn't start Kyle Martino in that game. He, he said that I don't start something to the effect of like, I don't start rookies in big games. 
he ended up winning rookie of the year that year and getting called into the national team. But we, we were so furious and it was one of those moments where, um, and this happens a lot of times where the group of players get together right before kickoff and we say, okay, despite everything he just said, let's go play for us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, we were, I remember being devastated. Um, and, uh, yeah, what, what, a what a final at Gillette, what was it like 62,000 the following week? Or yeah. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't the, the crowd for that one. That was a pretty amazing experience to see almost not a sold out stadium, but pretty close to it for, for Gillette. Yeah. I think it was 61, 62,000. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so, you know, you had an interesting end of your career. Maybe we'll get into that another time, but be, before we wrapped up, I wanted to, uh, ask you how you got into doing commentary. I think it, you started with Salt Lake, right? Yeah, so I uh, I ended up got so at the end of my career I broke my back my L four L five and couldn't really I, I just I couldn't train every day I could play on the weekends I just couldn't train every day, um, so my wife her dad was dying her sister had breast cancer we moved back here to Salt Lake City we were down in Los Angeles ended with the LA Galaxy, and uh, I, I was I was so you know there's 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 a wild moment in time which every professional athlete goes through where you realize it's the last professional paycheck you're ever going to get where they say okay you're no longer going to be paid to play soccer and that's a really surreal moment right because we're not doctors we're not lawyers we we work our whole young lives up to be something and all of a sudden it's like all right well you're no longer the soccer player who are you you're just the person um and so that week we moved back and salt lake had a game and I just knew, like, I could feel the depression setting in. And I was just like, okay, I got to get on top of this. Uh, Salt Lake was playing a game. I was driving to the stadium. I heard this pregame show. It sucked. Uh, I, I was like, you guys aren't talking about the matchups. You guys aren't talking about the dangerous players. Um, you're just basically a broad stroke. Like, you got to teach the fans what to look for. And so I saw my buddy Spence, who was on the broadcast. And then I saw my buddy Trey Fitzgerald, who used to work at the league office, who was running RSL. And I just started busting his balls typical of my personality i was just like hey man let me know when you want someone who knows what they're talking about i'll come jump on and they're like you know it's like it, it sounds so pretentious and such a dick move but it was like more like me just busting chops and they're like well it doesn't pay anything i was like i'll still do it and so that's how i got started pre and post game radio show didn't get paid the next year jumped on uh color analyst as radio which is the best I, I highly suggest anybody who starts start on radio because you have to be descriptive. Um, you have to basically paint a picture. So when someone goes and gets a drink, like they're still listening or in their, in their garage, they can like visually see what you're talking about. And then the next year I, I started TV and that led to NBC sports and Fox and ESPN and, and, and you know, all these great opportunities. Um, so yeah, uh, busting balls kind of turned this into a, a really cool life. That I'm very, very fortunate to, to be a part of, and I get to, Hang out every day with old Meat Hands Miola, um, <laughs> one of the biggest iconic uh, faces in the history of U.S. soccer. And you've also had a lot of interesting kind of side projects from Bumpy Pitch, Original Winger, Terrace Club. What are you up to these days? Yeah, so all of that. I think we're kind of a little bit ahead of our time. Um, you know, all of those have kind of been put to bed. Uh, we've been talking about potentially bringing Bumpy Pitch back, um, but yeah, just just trying to figure out what's next and uh, try to stay ahead of the curve right now. Um, there's a bunch of little side projects working out here in Salt Lake City trying to uh, kind of bring to life. I feel like the game is is more relevant than it's ever been um, and kind of just continuing to kind of help connect dots and collaborate with people and, and see what comes of that. So, you know, the broadcast side, the radio side, raising three boys, being married out here in Salt Lake, uh, it's, it's definitely a, a busier life at 43 than it was as a player at 23. And just let us know uh, where people can hear the counterattack on SiriusXM. 
Yeah, so it's Monday through Friday, uh, Sirius XM FC Channel 157. It's a soccer channel. Our show's Counterattack. Uh, it's from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock Eastern, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, and right now you can stream it for free through the end of the month. So uh, we're actually going to do a happy hour uh, here in a little bit. Tony Miola and I are hosting. Uh, and by the way, if you can't watch Bundesliga on television, you can listen to Bundesliga over on uh, Sirius XM FC Channel 157 all this weekend. So super stoked that the game's coming back. Uh, cannot wait. Awesome. Well, well, we'll let you go into that happy hour, Brian. We really appreciate you joining us today. And thanks for all the interesting stories. No problem. Anytime you guys need me, have a great one. Thanks, Brian. We appreciate it. And again, that was Brian Dunseth, who uh, you can listen to on the counterattack on Sirius XM uh, radio every weekday. And it's you know great to know that you can listen to it for free, even if you don't have Sirius XM streaming uh, these days. And obviously, you know Brian Dunseth and Tony Miola, two guys that uh, had long careers in, in U.S. soccer and MLS, both playing for you know the national team. Uh, so, you know, interesting insight from from those guys. And thanks again to, to Brian to, for joining us um, really quickly. I did want to talk about the Orlando plan that we t- discussed with Brian. Um, Greg, I, I was kind of curious your thoughts on that as well. Um, it, you know, it, it seems like a tough t- ask to ask guys to go away for, you know, eight to, to 10 weeks from their families in, in the middle of this. But, you know, Brian brought up a good point that a lot of these guys are itching to get back to soccer. And, um, you know, the lesser paid guys need the money. Yeah. And. I'll, I'll kind of cross sports here, but just the other day, Blake Snell of the Tampa Bay Rays uh, was on Twitch playing video games. He does that a lot uh, during the offseason and, and in quarantine. Uh, but someone brought up the point about going back to playing baseball for the love of the game. Uh, and he said, you know, what you guys need to understand is that, you know, it's not safe. Um, you know, we're away from our families. And on top of that, you are telling me that I have to take a pay cut to do that. Uh, and he said, I- I'm flat out not doing that if I'm uh, if I need to take a pay cut. Uh, and Blake Snell I don't know his salary, but it's certainly bigger than most players in MLS. Uh, the, the minimum salary in Major League Baseball is above what the average salary is for senior roster players in MLS. So um, I, I think if it might come down to money, I hate to say it like that, but um, I, I think if uh, MLS players are being told they have to take a 20 or 25 percent cut, um, as Brian said, you know, if you're making $100,000, that's not really too appealing. So um, even if they do cut out some sort of deal, if there's a pay cut involved, um, as Brian said, it's not one one size fit all. We might see some players um, opting to sit out and to stay with their families uh, if, if they don't feel comfortable going down to Orlando and, and playing under quarantine. Yeah, I mean, you have players that you know could be expecting a baby during that time. You know, players that are you know taking care of sick relatives or you know, have immunocompromised relatives, and they can't go visit them when they're when they're down there. No one can go visit them according to this plan. Um, so I, you know, I'm very interested to to see how that does end up playing out and you know whether or not that happens i think both of us would would love to see uh more mls games and see these guys back on the field but um you know i think there's a lot of reasons why guys you know like you know carlos vela or other you know big names that are making tons of money even you know carly's heel um you know may or may not have a different thoughts on on that situation than the guys that are making you know less than a hundred thousand dollars and you know really do need the money uh every year to to get by so we'll you know we'll we'll see what happens with that but um some interesting insight from from brian uh and i think you wanted to touch on one more point that you know we've kind of seen floating through the the internet recently yeah and and i meant to bring this up last week but we kind of lost track of time but um it's also a follow-up from an episode we had two or three episodes where um, we were asked about players whose contract may be ending uh, and we mentioned the possibility of carlos heel um, his contract, since we don't know the length of his term. Uh, after that episode, I went back and I looked up um, kind of the reports back from when he was signed. And there was a report out of Spain that said that Carly Hill signed a two-year contract with 
two team options, uh, which would mean he's under contract through 2022 if the revolution would want to keep him. Um, so, I mean, there might be an increase in salary. I'm sure there there is an increase in salary, but uh, he, he is under team control for two more years, according to that report. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because someone brought this up on Reddit uh, and kind of caused a little bit of panic attack on, on the message boards. But um, I, I just wanted to let our listeners know to calm down, breathe. Uh, Carly Skill reportedly is under contract for two more years with the revolution. Yeah, and honestly, that surprises me a little bit that he would agree to, to two team options, assuming that report's accurate. Because if you, when you look at you know his age, he turns 28 at the end of the season. Um, so he's you know kind of right in that prime point where if you wanted to go back to Europe and, and explore options there, um, you know that would be the ideal time to do it. If you add in another two years of team options, and you mentioned that maybe those options are for more money, I, I almost have to think have to assume that they are for more money because I don't know why else you know someone in his situation would necessarily agree to that and give the team that kind of control. Um, but you know, let's, let's assume they're for a lot more money. But but still, you're you're allowing the revolution to kind of tie you up through age thirty. Um, and if you're Carly's heel, going back to Europe at age 30 might be a little bit more difficult than going back to Europe at age 28. So um, that does surprise me a little bit that, you know, a DP that, um, you know, probably had some pretty good negotiating power against a struggling revolution team at the time uh, would agree to a contract with, with two team options. So I'm, I'm curious if that is, in fact, the case, but um, certainly very good news for the revolution if that is true. Well, and he was out of favor at his old team. Um, I, I do remember that, that he was out of favor. And I, I think they had just recently been relegated. Um, so the, he might not have had as much leverage. Um, but you're correct. I, I would imagine that there's a salary spike. But even if he is getting a um, you know, 150% increase and goes from 2 to $5 million in salary, um, I think the Crafts have kind of opened up the checkbook uh, and are, are trying to build a competitive squad uh, and I think Carly Seal is the most important player on the team, as we kind of saw how choppy they were in the first few games of the 2020 season. Uh, so I imagine that they're going to do everything they can to keep Carly's heel in New England. Um, and if not, they'll sell for a very, very uh, high asking price. I, I imagine if that's the, the route they want to go and Carly Seal does express interest in Europe, uh, I'm sure the Revs are not going to let him go very easily. Yeah, I mean, assuming the season comes back and at some point and, and Carlos Hill, you know, after this injury shows that he's still at least very close to the same player he was last year. I, you know, if the team has two options, I can't imagine a situation um, unless, you know, he, he comes back from, from injury and somehow isn't the same player uh, or they don't exercise those options because he's just such a key player for the Revolution team and he is, you know, in the prime of his career. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But, you know, that report that he had two team options, um, certainly, if true, is, is good news for the revolution and good news for their fans who I'm sure don't want to see Carly's heel go anywhere. Absolutely. Um, and we will wrap things up here. Uh, we, as we previewed in the interview, in the, uh, earlier with Brian Dunseth, we do have you know, a couple more player interviews coming up, uh, one of which we hope is, is Tay Kronopoulos, who um, was, again, part of the revolution during that same era as Brian Dunseth and was you know, one of those guys that receives votes when people put in best 11 uh opportunities for the revolution for all-time best 11 he's a guy that's always you know either on my list or close to it when i'm thinking about some of the best revolution players as uh one of those guys that was really solid for the revolution as a as a left back um so we'll have that to look forward to uh greg before we wrap things up do you want to give out um our twitter handle and our facebook 
Yeah, I do. And I was about to cut you off because I thought you were going to reveal our other person we're working, working to get on the um, podcast. And I want to keep that one a secret until yes. the, the episode drops because <laughs> I, I, I'm very excited about the uh, our, our second potential interview uh, coming up. But you can follow us at Revolution Recap. Please also like the Revolution Recap page on Facebook. And please, if you can, uh, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It has been a while since we've gotten a five-star review. So I'm just saying, if you're liking these interviews, if you like what we're doing, please uh, show the love and uh, give us a five-star review or, or leave a comment uh, that is very uh, complimentary to us. So thank you. Which, which to, to be clear, doesn't mean we've gotten bad reviews. It's just during the uh, coronavirus break, we haven't we have been seeing a lack of reviews. So time to change that. Yeah. <laughs> Someone left a three-star review, though, and I'm—I mean, I'm—I'm not—I would say I'm disappointed, but I'm pretty <laughs> confident it was one of my younger brothers who's just trying to mess with me. It happened over the weekend of my wedding, and I think he heard me talking about it by podcast. And three-star reviews are more annoying than one-star reviews, you know what I mean? So, like, it's like uh, someone actually thought about this and thought we we're pretty average. So I was really, you know, but I, I know they're just trying to get under my skin. Uh, and, and you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. As we mentioned, we do have some other player interviews lined up, one of which uh, is Teddy Kronopoulos. Uh But thanks again to everyone for listening. Um, and again, thanks to Brian Dunseth for giving us his time. Um, and you know, as I said, you should check out his show on, on SiriusXM. He's always got interesting insight, and we've been seeing him all over the place in MLS soccer and, and elsewhere giving interviews lately. And, um, you know, one of those players that's really willing to open up about his career. So we appreciate his time. And uh, thanks again to everybody. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks, that's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.